Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tegal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Jarleth Keating, President and CEO at ABL. Jarleth has over 25 years of global life science industry experience. He started his career in the UK before transitioning to the US in 2009. During this time, he worked for Highclone and Lonza Biologics. He served as the VP of Global Commercial Operations for Millipore Sigma's Process Solutions Services Division, leading the Bioreliance Biological Safety Testing and Biomanufacturing Division. And he now leads ABL. Hey, Jarleth, welcome to the show. Hi, Roman, and th- thank you very much for, for having me. It's a real pleasure to get to, to speak with you this afternoon. Look forward to our conversation. Likewise, likewise. And just off air before we were talking about that, I was, uh, despite the fact that my research, I knew you were from the UK, it was nice to hear a British accent. So <laughs> it's good to have a, a fellow Brit in the US on on the show. And and just to start off with, it would be great. Um, obviously, I've given a little synopsis of, of the, I suppose, the career path that you've had today. But for our listeners that have not come across you before, it'd be great if you could just give a, a bit of a history of how you got into this space. And uh, I'm particularly interested in, in it, I suppose, your transition from, from the UK to the US as well. Sure, absolutely, my pleasure. So, um, so I, I started in the in the industry in 1993 after graduating from the University of Teesside, uh, and I had focused on the the process biotechnology course that they had offered. I thought that'd be a great way to get into a career that was associated with sciences, life sciences, biology, which was an interest of mine. And I started working in uh, at Lonza Biologics there in Slough in London and was really working on the, the manufacturing floor um, where the sort of early days of large molecule manufacturing was taking place. So, you know, Lonza was a real pioneer in, in, in that space uh, in the in the early 90s. Um, I then transitioned into or out of the lab environment and actually started to gain an interest in the sales and marketing side of things and transitioned to then work for uh, what was life technologies uh, up in up in Scotland, and that that progressed from there. I went from um, being in sort of technical support to into sales, uh, and that's really where my career started to um, gain some momentum. Uh, I worked uh, you know, carrying the, carrying the bag as a sales rep um, for companies like Life Technologies and then Highclone, uh, and then started to transition into management and went from that you know, individual contributor as a sales person into that sales management role and then took a very linear trajectory from there sales manager to sales director and sales director to um, senior sales director vp of sales and then vp of commercial operations in my in my role prior to joining abl um and 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 really the the transition from the uk to the us occurred during that time as as a as a sales leader um, I was working for BioAlliance at the time, and BioAlliance was a privately held organization who were looking to accelerate their growth, uh, and they needed a, a sales leader in the U.S. marketplace. I was asked to transition from the U.K. to the U.S., uh, originally on a, on a three-year intercompany transfer, um, but that turned out to be a very successful um, journey for me. Uh, and I ended up staying in the US uh, and continuing my career in, in sales and in commercial operations right up until the point where I, I then joined uh, ABL and uh, stepped into the, the CEO role. 
Fantastic. Thank you for your succinct kind of journey today. And um, I had a few questions to ask uh, kind of about that journey. I wanted to take a, you mentioned right at the start about Teesside University and, uh, you know, for for those of you that don't know the area and, you know, my original background is in, in Northeast England, which is right next to Teesside. It'd be interesting to give the listener a bit of an overview of that part of the world, obviously a huge industrial hub, but for, uh, you know, our listeners that have never heard of Teesside and what goes on there. There's some pretty big names in the chemical industry there. Do you mind just painting a little picture of that part of the world and also what what made you choose that particular university as well? Certainly. So uh, I, I mentioned that you know, going back to the, the early days of biotechnology, you know, as you say, Teesside was very much associated with, with big chemical engineering facilities. I mean, ICI was the, the, the behemoth at the time. And it just so happened that ICI um, sponsored the Teesside University Chemical Engineering Group. Obviously, they, they would look to pull uh, graduates from Teesside University who had done chemical engineering into their organization. And then as a, as a sort of peripheral periphery to that, um, they started to talk about setting up a, a process biotechnology or biochemical engineering um, faculty within Teesside University. You know, that was housed under the chemical engineering group. So when I was um, looking to do my degree, I was very interested in biology, really wanted to, you know, take, take a career in the sciences, but didn't necessarily want to be that research scientist. I was really looking at that industrial biotechnology application. And this was really the first course, I would I'd say, in, in the UK, that really focused on industrial biology. And what it meant to actually you know, manufacture products in, in that biotech setting. And so I, I applied for the course. It was a four-year sandwich course uh, starting in 1989. And, and I, you know, I completed that course in, in, in uh, 1993. And uh, it was a great experience from a point of view of you know, learning about a nascent industry at the time. Teesside itself, uh, again, as you say, in, in very sort of industrial part of, of the United Kingdom, has a unique culture, a, a unique uh, sense of the world. And I spent a lot of time between Teesside, Sunderland and Newcastle uh, and really enjoyed that part of the of the world. You know, it was a, a unique time to be there as well. This is when Middlesbrough Football Club was actually quite a powerhouse. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which but you can't say anymore. But um, that was the time when they had uh, they actually were performing pretty well in the Premiership. Well, yeah, I think Newcastle are the only ones just about flying the flag on a, on, a, on a football level. And and you mentioned you obviously moved to the US. Uh, you know, I think it was eleven years, eleven or twelve years ago now, and you came here for three years. And a decade or so later, you're still here. I'm just curious what. What made you stay in the US? And, you know, were you tempted to go back to the UK, or was it just the the role that you were doing in the US that that you know made you want to want to stay here? I think it was a combination of things. Um, we we settled very quickly. My my wife and I moved over, and we both settled into the the lifestyle very very rapidly. And I think after six months of being here, we knew that we would be here longer than the three years that we were originally contracted to be here for and I think it's a combination of things you know the it was certainly the job opportunity at the time was very dynamic and the opportunities subsequent um, have obviously been um, very rewarding um, for, for, for me and my, and my family uh, I think the, the the culture the climate here in in a, I'm, I'm based in Maryland uh, in the US and it's very dynamic it's a real melting pot of cultures and, and uh, 
people and scenes and sounds and i've really enjoyed living in this part of of, of the us um and of, and of course you know you you start to put roots down my daughter was born here uh, and it's become home so i think it's just been a natural progression of you know the you know, the roots going deeper and deeper the longer you stay in, in a place and, and we're, we're very settled very happy here very good. Pleased to hear it as well. And you mentioned, you know, in, in your kind of overview of your career and obviously you've ended up at ABL and for our listeners that have, have not come across the business before, do you mind giving us a bit of an overview of, of what ABL does? I'm actually interested in what ABL stands for because I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. And also just kind of uh, just give us a, a, yeah, a bit of an overview of, of the business. I understand you have sites in the US and, and Europe as well. That's correct. So ABL, or Advanced Bioscience Laboratories, is a quite a unique organization in that it has sort of three legs to the stall. We are a contract development and manufacturing organization focusing very much on gene therapy and viral vector oncolytic vaccine manufacturing. We are a contract testing organization in that we focus on biomarker analyses and cell-based assay analyses serving um, you know, the, the, the biotech and bio pharma sector in clinical trial testing support uh, and we're also a CRO um, in that we support the US government in orchestrating a number of their large research programs into various therapeutic, therapeutic areas but a lot of the history in that part of the business is, is associated with, with um, HIV um, research. So it's a, quite a unique combination of, of um, sort of three legs to this stool. They have different dynamics different um, you know, growth uh, drivers in the marketplace right now. Um, and yes, we are a global company in that we have um, facilities in France, in Strasbourg and in Lyon, which are focused on our contract manufacturing part of the business. Um, so a global organization, um, you know, CDMO, CRO, um, CTO, and you know, obviously in this juncture, with, you know, in today's environment, uh, it's, it's a very busy time for us. Mm-hmm. Very good. And actually, that leads me nicely on because I wanted to read something that I came across on your website, uh, which says, uh, I think this might be your your mission or your purpose. Uh, ABL harnesses decades of pioneering science and manufacturing expertise to drive the development of innovative therapies and vaccines supporting the biopharmaceutical industry in in their quest to improve public health. That sounds to me like you are a very good fit for COVID <laughs> related, you know, with the public health element and the vaccines element. So I'm, when I read that, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sure these guys have had a very busy 12 months or so. Is that a fair assumption? Uh, it, it is. Um, we've been lucky enough to have worked now on a number of the experimental COVID vaccines that a number of our customers are ultimately developing. Um, that's both been in our contract testing organization and our contract manufacturing organization. And we actually um, released a couple of press releases in 2020 that describe some of the programs that we've been been working on. Um, Those manufacturing programs have been really in our European facilities because that's where we have a large scale. And yes, it's it's been very humbling to be involved in this this race against time and, and, and this battle against this this pandemic, uh, and you know, from a from a public health perspective, you know, that's what we're focusing on. And ABL is is actually owned by Institute Mario. Uh, Institute Mario is a very large organisation that has a very strong 
footprint in healthcare. Uh, so what, you know, what we're doing very much augments and complements the mission of our of our owner uh, as well, which is obviously very important. That's really interesting. And I have to ask about you. Know, you mentioned your uh, kind of transition from, uh, I suppose, if I've understood correctly, you've kind of operations to management to director to now senior leader of, of a business and how have you found that transition you mentioned linear uh, in your at the start uh, i'm particularly interested in going from i suppose uh, a commercial operations lead to becoming the ceo of the business and leading the business and and it's a it's a path that i see a lot of leaders like yourself go on so i'm kind of interested to know how you found that transition and and in particular what it's like leading the business now uh, you know very fast growing business from what i understand as well how has that transition been for you um i think it's been exciting uh, it's been daunting uh, exa- exhausting at times of course you're running a business uh, and, and particularly in, in in the current environment in which we're running it it's, it's challenging but I think um, the way I would answer that question is, as I got more and more senior in my organisations, um, and particularly in the latter sort of years when I was working with the the Millipore Sigma organisation, is that you you start to, to look at a, across the organisation in a much broader spectrum. You're not just you know, head of sales or head of marketing or head of project management. You, you get a very good viewpoint of, of how the business works in its totality, um, and that sort of systems awareness, as I would call it. Uh, and you know, you you look for opportunities to educate yourself. You know, you're looking at you know, you know augmenting some of your experience with maybe you know, you know, general management programs or executive leadership programs. Um, trying to pull from subject matter experts in, in how you um, can knit together um, a set of skills and a set of competencies that will then help you go forward. And I mean, that's very much the case with with myself going from what was a very senior sort of sales and, and customer service role into then leading a you know, whole organization. Um, I have really relied on that broad spectrum experience of you know, not being necessarily a subject matter expert at any one thing, but having a good uh, overarching knowledge of multiple things so that you can lead a business you know, from, from um, soup to nuts. Um, yeah. uh, and that, that's certainly, I think, uh, how, it's, how it's worked for me in the last two and a half years. And I'm, and I'm curious to know what was was there something was there a trigger point that made you go from I suppose just looking at sales and marketing and customer service to then starting to look across the organisation because it's quite a it's quite an interesting I suppose I'm going to say it's it's an unusual skill set that for a what I would class as a salesperson or a business development person to start looking wider than hey just the the revenue and the leads that we're generating. What was there something that triggered that point uh, to to for you to start doing that? Well, it's it's driven by necessity. Again, you know, once you get into senior roles in an organisation, you know, obviously for the for the for the organisation to execute on its obligations to its customers, it takes a whole team of people to do that it's not just the sales people that's only obviously all the marketing people or the, the the project management people it's a it's everybody from you know supply chain warehouse you know, you know project management operations facilities hr i mean you've got to be aware that in order to deliver something to your customer there's, there's a, a a lot of activity that has to happen and has to happen in a in a certain in a way to to be successful and as you get more senior in the organization i think it's 
it's an absolute necessity to be aware of how these things fit together. What does the jigsaw look like uh, in order for you to be successful? So I, I would say to, and I say certainly say this to my leadership team, it's not good enough to just be a subject matter expert in your own domain. The more senior you are in the organization, you have to have that ability to look across the business and recognize that you can't be successful unless your colleagues are successful. And it, it is a, a systems-wide execution that needs to happen in order for you to be successful and ultimately for you to make your customers successful. That's great advice. Uh, I just jotted down. I love that quote there around, if you want to be successful, you know, you've got to make your colleagues successful as well. And the kind of jigsaw analogy, I think is a great one for people to visualize what, what that looks like. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. I'm interested in you mentioned towards the start, you know, you started your career kind of on the manufacturing floor and in, in labs at, at, uh, at Lonza Biologics, I think. Do you think that ground level operational experience is probably better uh, prepared you for the role that you do now? Because presumably you have a sense of empathy and understanding for your colleagues in, in different parts of the business? Yeah, I, I think in all the roles I've had, I mean, I've, I've worked for, for the most part, mid-sized companies. Um, and even when we were part of much bigger organizations like Millipore Sigma, within that division I was responsible for, it was a mid-sized company. Uh, I think you're always close to the science. You're always close to the to the activity that ultimately you know, makes the company tick and so yeah so you're yeah, understanding what goes on on the on the on the, you know, the the floor of the manufacturing unit or what's going on in the lab and the dynamics in in, in the testing suites and things like that it, it always helps you to be able to articulate again our value proposition to our customers i mean you know you're only as good as the there's the ability to convey your value proposition to your customers and in order to do that effectively you've got to understand what it is your company does at a, at a fairly granular level. So having you sort of walked the walk myself, albeit that was many, many years ago, I think you know you you have to be able to recognize you know the work that gets done and then convey that into a message to 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 your customers um, so that and so that it's a, a believable message as well. Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's a huge benefit of it. I know I've mentioned on a previous interview before on the, the first role I ever had in a CDMO as part of my induction. I had to spend a a week in the in a sterile manufacturing environment in a clean room, and the level of I suppose understanding and respect I had for my operational colleagues after that was very different. <laughs> Once I'd walked the walk and uh, seen how hot it was wearing PPE in that environment, I had a completely uh, different set of, I suppose, expectations for, of that team. And uh, so it was a good good learning. And I wanted to ask a bit about your, you know, if you, if you look on the face of it and, and actually just by, by talking to you today, you've obviously had a very successful career and you've managed to develop a really um kind of strong career trajectory ultimately to, to leading a business in the space now what what would you attribute that success to is there something in your I suppose natural um, makeup or something that you're you've educated yourself on or that you work on is it I'm just curious to know what it is that has really helped you drive your career forward um 
it's yeah, it's, it's not an, an easy answer to that. Uh, I think I could say you know, you know, hard work plays a large part in that. Um, the you know, keeping focused on on the goals and the deliverables uh, within each of the roles that I've had. Um, but I think the best answer I can give you is actually taking the opportunities when they presented themselves, which in, which includes taking risk. Um, and it also means backing yourself and thinking, well, I, I, you know, I, this is daunting. I'm, I'm being asked to take on a, a more responsibility. I'm being asked to take on a bigger role in the organization. Can I do this? Am I qualified? Am I, am I skilled enough to do this? You're always going to have self-doubt. You're always going to question, question your own ability at times. But it's that ability to, I think, back yourself uh, and the yes, you know, I, I can do this. And, um, I, and if, I, if I need help, I know where to go for help. Uh, and I've got good people around me and I've got mentors around me that can help me on that journey. I think that's part of it. I mean, it, it's you know, back yourself, know your skills, know what you're good at, focus on those areas and minimize your weaknesses. But don't focus on your weaknesses because that then diminishes you focusing on what you're good at and then getting better at what you're good at. So I think part of it is just taking taking the, the, the calculated risk and backing yourself, and uh, uh, and in some respects, you know, going for it, which is a little bit of a cliche, but also um, you know, hard work. There's nothing replaces just just being you know hard hard work. I think it's and an ambition to succeed. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, sorry to interrupt. There was a terrific piece of advice that around backing yourself and and. I suppose leaning into the opportunities and risks when they appear, and it's it's interesting. You know, having interviewed people like yourself on the podcast, it seems to be a very consistent theme of of successful leaders in the industry that you know when the opportunities arise, you've got to take them, and even if they carry some risk, you have to lean into that and believe in yourself. And and even what you mentioned there about having mentors around you and having people like you know smart people to to lean on is uh, is really important. And you mentioned weaknesses there. I was going to ask you the kind of opposite question, which is, you know, what, you know, in some respects, people will look at you and be like, wow, this guy seems to have it all figured out. <laughs> what, what is it that you have to work on? Is there a particular skill or competence or something that you, you constantly find yourself uh, trying to refine and, and improve upon? Yeah, so for, for somebody who, who went through a scientific path, obviously went to university, studied science um you would think that i'd be uh, comfortable with with you know mathematics and numbers and things like that and actually it's not if, if there's a if there's a bit of a blind spot for me it's it is that financial side of the of the equation yeah, i'm not a natural mathematician for example or i'm not a natural you know accountant or, or you know financial officer so i i have to work at that i have to study that uh, it's not something that comes very natural to me luckily i have some very good people around me who can help me in that area and again you know being the, the ceo i don't have to be the financial expert you know, that's what um, my colleagues are for but it is something that uh, i'm i'm cognizant of that i i could do better at and um you know be more independent at um but again it's not something i've always enjoyed and so I tend to focus on again what I what I like to to do and what I think I'm good at and where I think I create more value, and then I will rely on uh, my you know, my colleagues to to be that sort of crutch um, when it comes to some of those more complex financial um, you know, considerations you have when running a business. Mm-hmm. I seem to um, um, maybe I've got this wrong, but I seem to recall that you did a finance type qualification at Harvard Business School. It might be in a, a... Uh, maybe I've come across it on your on your LinkedIn profile. Is that is that something that you did to try and address 
that that kind of uh, that lack of knowledge that you had and maybe yes. that helped because I think it's a great it's a great lesson if that's why you did it which is kind of that it's classic you know you're never too old to learn <laughs> and uh, I'm just I'm interested to know whether it, that was one of the reasons that you you did that particular course that's exactly the reason I did that course I mean a recognition that again it's not an area of strength and that it needed to be strengthened uh, so I was lucky enough to take that opportunity and and do that that, that program at Harvard and I've done other programs as well um, uh, I've, I've gone you know, through general management programs um, within my companies to, that always have a financial element to them and, and I've done a little bit of self-learning on that respect as well so you know trying to minimize this weakness address this what I perceive as a weakness um, so that it's not a not a hindrance or not a detractor from the business um, is, is the reason why I was focusing in that particular area. Yeah, good for you. And I think it's kind of, it's great advice for other people to kind of, there are any weaknesses that you, you're struggling with. There is, you know, options out there to educate yourself. I, you know, I, I speak to my team now and, you know, I run a reasonably successful communications agency. And, you know, I remember a few years into my career, realized my grasp of English was actually terrible. And, you know, at 25 years old, went back to college and did an English A level, an English language A level, and uh, you know, you I was never you're never too old to learn new things, and that was a that was a really useful qualification that I got that's helped me in my career certainly. So I think it's great advice, and and on the kind of the theme of leadership and advice, if if you could go back to your 25 year old self and and give them some advice, what what would you say? I I would say. That you you know you shouldn't let the job define you, and what I mean by that is having grown up in a sales environment, you you have that sort of cliche about what a salesperson does, what a salesperson is, and the personality that that person would have because they are that sort of you know cliched or stereotyped salesperson, and sometimes it's actually easy to fall into that trap that you think you've got to be that sort of hyper aggressive or very direct or overly blunt or um, you know, overly critical individual because I'm the sales guy. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, all I'm interested in is driving for numbers and um, irrespective of, of um, you know, what it means to the rest of the business. I think you know, over time you, you mature, you learn. Uh, and I think I was maybe even not even in my, in my 20s, probably in my 30s as well, guilty of, of being somewhat stereotyped as a, as a salesperson as, and then as a leader of sales teams and and yeah my advice is you know don't fall into that cliche um don't let the job define you um you know let, let your own drivers and your own personality define the role um not the role itself oh very wise words i, I couldn't agree more and and how would your best friend describe you in in three words today probably very boring um it's <laughs> probably say that i'm i'm probably you know measured sometimes overly measured unflappable um at least on the outside but but also committed um and uh, yeah i think they're, they're the words i'd like people to associate with me with you know a certain maybe courageousness as well um these are the, the kind of things that would resonate i think good, very good and last kind of five minutes or so and i wanted to kind of uh, i suppose refocus back on the the sector that we we operate in uh really interested to know your views on kind of big trends and changes that you're seeing going on and obviously you guys are in a very unique position to see the market from a, a manufacturing a testing and research perspective so 
uh, yeah, if you're willing to share some some interesting things that are going on from your perspective, not even specifically to your business, but just uh, you know within the industry at large, um, you know, you know, using the the lens of COVID, if that helps, you know, how things have changed because of COVID. Yeah. So, well, certainly for ABL, one of the areas that we're focused on right now is the, the gene therapy environment, doing on clinic vaccine space, and. You know, that has really exploded um, over the last four or five years. You know, what was really a, a, an experimental therapy is now probably more of a nascent therapy and now is beginning to mature into you know, a, a therapy class that potentially has legs. Uh, obviously, it's gone through its trials and tribulations over the decades, but you know, this time around, I think you know, gene therapy um, you know, is, is going to, and cell therapy as well, it is going to to, to get over the finish line. And there's lots of indicators of that. It's you know, the investment coming into the space from private equity, from venture capital, um, from big pharma. You know, big pharma are now stepping into this space themselves where historically they've they very much left this space to the innovators. So that whole dynamic has changed around that gene therapy, viral vector clinic vaccine space. And, and my organization is, is well positioned to take advantage of that because we've been operating here for you know, um, almost a decade now. And well, I think we're going to see that that expand and, and uh, the, you know, the dynamics ramp up even more, which is very exciting for, for us and for the industry. I think from our, what's COVID done? COVID has done a, a lot of things um, for, the, for the life science and healthcare industry. I think it's certainly put the spotlight back on healthcare. I think, you know, the... The need for vaccines, the need for new vaccines is now much more prevalent out there. I think people have become very complacent uh, about what the the healthcare industry was doing. There was a lot of, particularly in the US, it was being maligned um, in the political spectrum for for, a number of years. Um, I don't need to to repeat what's been said about it. the, The biotech and the biopharma industry or the pharma industry. Um, and sure, it's not perfect. I'd like to find an industry that is. But I think what COVID has done is, is just put the emphasis back on the importance of, of healthcare. Uh, and um, you know, this this pandemic has demonstrated just how fragile it can be. And so I think that's a good thing overall. Now, on the negative side, apart from the fact that obviously it's 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 causing you know devastating to to people's health and to to families and to economies, um, it's also put a lot of pressure on the supply chain. Uh, and it's also very interestingly completely upended the dynamics in the job market. Um, I think a lot of industries have seen a dampening down of maybe um, you know, the, the, in, in the job transfer market. We've seen a massive ramping up. Um, companies are competing for talent more and more and more. COVID has only accelerated that. Uh, and I think one of the biggest challenges we face today in this space is is that talent management um it is a war out there right now for talent uh, because it's just not there's not enough people out there with the skill sets that we need uh, and i hope in the long term you know as we refocus and, and maybe there's more acceptance or more recognition that you know healthcare is is critical and, and, and as people go into their uh, secondary and tertiary education that they'll see um, science and, and technology um, as, a, as a career path. 
uh, and, and that they will be available at, you know, to, to be able to come into the workforce with the skills that we need, because right now there is a, a shortage. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point around, I suppose, the spotlight that COVID's placed on the sector and for good and for bad. But I, I particularly think the, the battle for talent is, is very real. And I was part of a roundtable discussion uh, at the back end of 2020 and the conversation was around the fact that there just simply isn't enough talent, particularly in biomanufacturing, in the, in the area of the industry that you operate in. They're just, there are not enough people with the skills and the expertise to actually uh, to deal with the demand in the sector. So I think in one sense, you're in a great part of the market, but in the other sense, you know, I'm sure it's very challenging <laughs> to, uh, to be able to keep up with, it, with the demand. So thanks for, thanks for sharing your insights. And my final question for you was, um, I suppose if you could make one change to the sector that we are, we operate in, you know, you've, you've spent the best part of 25, 30 years in the contract services space. And in particular, you've seen the, the, the bio processing and biomanufacturing part of the market really grow and mature in, in the time that you've been in the sector. Is there one thing that you, or if there was one thing that you could change about the sector to, you know, to make it better, more efficient, what, what would that be? That's a great question, and there's probably a dozen answers to that. Um, I think if I was looking at it from a developer's perspective or an innovator's perspective, it would be yeah, the sophistication of the tools that we have to predict faster um, the, the, you know, the efficacy, the, the, um, the safety of, of, of a drug. I mean, there's, you know, the, the failure rate is still obviously very high. The, the risk is still extremely high as you go from preclinical to clinical one and, and through through the clinical phases. The costs associated with that are astronomical and only getting worse. And so I think, you know, I'm sure that a lot of my colleagues out there and, and certainly those people who are who are holding the purse strings for these innovator companies and, and, and the, you know, the companies that have big pipelines is, is better analytics to predict success earlier. Because it's yeah, it's a money pit at the best of times, and um, the failure rates are still are still very significant. I think it's a it's a great point, and uh, I'm going to sneak in one last question actually because um it's a it's a good follow on from from that one, and I'm I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. And did you did you ever expect to see a drug come to market as quick as we've seen in the last year? I suppose the the pace of development, the pace of time to market, and you know, did you ever expect to see that? And what what can we learn from that? Uh, I suppose that outcome that we have, you know, three vaccines, uh, pretty much three vaccines approved and on the market in less than nine months or so. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'll be very very honest. I did not think we would move as quickly as we have. Uh, I was expecting it to be twelve to eighteen months, probably more like eighteen months, to be honest. I think what it shows though is. When there is a true, a true emergency, and you put the all that resource and all that momentum and focus the, those um, those capability skill sets momentum in one area, it's amazing what you can do. I mean, you know, who knew that we would do this in nine months? Or the industry would do this in nine months. It has been tremendous. I think, you know, obviously there was there was some foundation there um, from some of these organisations. We had SARS, we had MERS. Um, and, and thankfully, there was some found that the platform work had been done on those um, those viruses that had helped accelerate the SARS vaccine. So I think you know, maybe that's the lesson learned here. 
is that we should be anticipating rather than reacting. Um, and you know, can we develop platforms that can be quickly tooled to meet the needs of the you know of the next pandemic or the next epidemic um, that will inevitably occur um, as as we you know as, as we globalize this this planet even more. So that's the learning I think. I think the ask as well is you know it's obviously highly politicized. It's become highly nationalistic as well. Um, the ask is that those those situations are are dismantled and that when we have something as serious as COVID that you know countries and governments are working together because again you think about how fast we could have moved if there was no borders there was no um, limitations on sharing intellectual property or data um, or talent or resource just what we could do in in, in the healthcare space not just in COVID but in, in healthcare generally HIV AIDS is still you know a major killer globally um after 35 years of trying to address this um maybe if we pulled our resources as a as a as a global uh global scientific community we could fix that Uh, and and there's other diseases out there as well that we could potentially address so that that, i guess that's the ask as well Mm -hmm. well i think i think it's a really interesting place to to conclude our uh, interview today and uh, Jala thank you so much for making the time because I know you're a very busy man but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to to have you on Molecule to Market so thank you for for being here with us. My pleasure Aman thank you very much for for having me and uh, good luck with the podcast going forward and good luck with the business. Thank you stay safe. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to market pod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.